Welcome back from my side of the universe on KOAL 1073 FM and 750 AM. I'm your host, Todd Wilcox, and we'll be joined today by Paul Willis. Uh, you can find him at paulanthonywillis.com. He has a book, Escaping from Eden. Uh, does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? Should be a fascinating book. Paul has uh, quite a background and really does a lot of stuff. You can also find him on Fifth Kind TV at YouTube. Lots of good stuff to see with him. So check those out. And uh, I would get on there if you can uh, before we start the show. And just so you have an idea where he's where he's coming from and maybe you might want to order his book. It sounds absolutely fascinating. I was super excited when I found out he wanted to be on the show. So uh, stay tuned. We will be back with more Paul Wallace in just a moment. Be sure to go see our friends uh, Bobcat and Sue Ann at the Eastern Utah Tourism and History Association. Say hi, see the cat, talk to the ghost, have a good time down there. Everything's open, and they don't look like a pawn shop anymore. So uh, go see them again. Uh, Bobcat's probably running around in a suit of armor. It'll be a great time. So uh, be sure to support them. We'll be back in just a moment with more My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. Welcome back to My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. I'm your host, Todd Wilcox, and today we're joining Paul Wallace, and we're going to be talking to Paul from the other side of the globe, uh, talking about his book, Escaping from Eden. Does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? You can find out about Paul at paulanthonywallace.com. And it might be a good thing to do as we get started here so you can see what he's talking about and what he's doing. Paul, welcome to my side of the universe. You glitched right as you were welcoming me there, but I'll, oh. uh, I'll, I'll go if I heard. All right. Yeah, I was just... Todd, thanks so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. It's, it's great to have you here. I, uh, I had hoped that we would have a wonderful um, electronic connection today. It seems to be an issue. Um, Paul's stuff is working great. Uh, my stuff, as usual, is struggling. Um, but we're going we're gonna to get through this the best we can. Paul, I already told the audience about your book and your website. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about what Escaping from Eden is all about and what, what got you interested in it and why you did the book. Well, this title really spells out what, what we're looking at in Escaping from Eden. It's, does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by Eden? And my way into this, my background is in Christian ministry. I've been involved as a, a kind of a church doctor for about 33 years. I've worked as a theological educator for uh, Pentecostal, Foursquare churches in the UK and in Australia, and I've served as an archdeacon. Uh, in the Anglican Church in Australia. So part of that work has involved um, a lot of teaching from the Bible. And through the years, 33 years, I've preached a number of times through the book of Genesis. And every time I've done it, I've thought, there is something going on in this book that I'm not getting to. I'm scratching around on the surface here. And there are these very strange anomalies in the text that I really need to get my head around. Now, any parent who's ever sat down with a, a child's Bible and, and a child, some of these anomalies are. And they're the simple questions a child will ask. Questions like, uh, why does it say, let us make? Let us make the humans to look like one of us. Well, one of who? And then how, who's this serpent who suddenly turns up in Genesis 3? Couldn't God see there's going to be a problem? And then why is it the death penalty of reading a piece of now, why is he genociding human race? And you've got to explain genocide to a child and how a loving God could do that. And then you get to Genesis 11, and you've got the human race being bombed back into a pre-stone because they build a building that's too tall. Well, you get through all those anomalies, and you think, no, there's something else going on in this story. I'm not sure what it is. And, and you can't really handle them as moral stories because what are the morals of all those stories? Uh, but then like a, a lot of parents, people, preachers, when do you get back to it? Uh, we're all kept so ridiculously busy 
that it literally took me years to say, now I have the time, these questions, and find out what's going on. So it was partly through the experience that any preacher has or any parent has in handling the Bible and, and trying to work out what on earth is going on in these stories of beginnings. But there are a couple of other things that, that kicked off Escaping from Eden. And one, there was a real prompt uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, Todd, I don't know if you remember, the, the Roman Catholic Church convened the Pontifical Academy of Sciences uh, for a colloquium in 2009. Does that ring any bells? Is that is that when um, they talked about that there was life outside of the, the earth and that it was okay to talk about that life? Yeah, that's it. That was the one. Well, it blew my socks off when that happened. <laughs> that was 2009. Under the most conservative pope in my lifetime, Pope XVI, and all of a sudden we've got spokespeople for the Vatican uh, going to the press about what's happened at this colloquium, which is a symposium of sort of top theologians and top scholars. And they were meeting the press and saying, uh, we need to be ready sooner than anyone anticipates to embrace a brother or sister alien. That was what we heard from Gabriel Funes, who's the uh, director of the Vatican um, Observatory. Then Monsignor Corrado Balducci, a name because he's the Vatican's expert in paranormal phenomena, said that when people report close encounters, it's not a psychological issue we're talking about. It's not a psychotic break. Um, it's not a demonic encounter. Our experiencing a totally different kind of entity, one that merits seriously. And then Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno, who's senior astronomer at an observatory, said we should not be talking in terms of aliens because these other species will be creatures of the same creator there'd be children of the same heavenly father. And we shouldn't be shouldn't be surprised because they're in the Bible, he said. They're in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when he said that, I thought, well, how could I have missed that? I've been training pastors in how to interpret the Bible for 15 years. Could I really have missed something as glaring as aliens in the Bible? But that was clearly the call. He was throwing down a gauntlet and saying, people, come back and look at these texts because they're full of aliens. And so I said to myself, when I have the, t I'm going to check that out. Can that really be true? And so again, when I finally had the time to sit down and do the study, I went with that question in mind. Are there aliens in the Bible? Are they there from start to finish as Guy Consolmanius? What, what is the reality? What's going on? And you found you found uh, evidence, I'm going to take it, and that's where the book came from. I, I cannot wait to hear what it was you found. <laughs> yeah, that is the beginning. That's, that is what led to the book. Now, I had, to be fair to myself, I, I had some openness to the idea that we might be in a populated universe. And this thought had been in the back of my mind since I was about 11 years old when I first to the work of Eric von Daniken. My parents introduced me to okay. Chariots of the Gods. And I, that what that book did well was to point out that there's a gap in our ability to explain ourselves as an intelligent, conscious, technological species. Uh, there's a gap, whether you're approaching it from a religious or a scientific viewpoint. And so I, I'd always conceded it might be possible. And I thought there might be an alien or two lurking around in the text. But there is a translation key I discovered when I finally took the time. And it revolves around one of the words the Bible uses for God, two main root words it uses, Elohim and Yahweh. Elohim is the earlier word, much, much later in the time of Moses. And the Elohim word, the original older word, is a funny word. It turns out to be a plural form word, masculine plural. It often takes plural verbs, having conversations, arguments, conflicts, wars, let up, all that. And so as I began to come to turn this strange word, Elohim, I was confronted with the question, what happens if you translate it as a plural? Because, you know, something looks like that. You have to consider 
what if it is a duck? <laughs> so I went at the t- freshly putting Elohim in the plural to see what would happen to the stories. And of course, the stories change, but they don't change in a random way. What happens is that as soon as you read Elohim in the plural, the stories do a flip and they line up with the ancient Sumerian, Babylonian, Indian, Assyrian texts of the cuneiform tablet, which we started digging up about 500 years ago. And it becomes very clear very quickly that the Bible stories of beginnings are based on these earlier Mesopotamian stories. And what makes that so significant? All the familiar stories are there, Adam and Eve, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Bay, of human life, so on and so forth. But the original versions of the story of God at all, their stories about our ancestors bumping up against an extraterrestrial species. You come to planet Earth and then start interfering in our evolution and managing our Hey, Paul. I'm still here, but I didn't All right. hear anything. Yeah, we lost you for just a second, So, um, but that's okay. So we, we left off, and you sound great now. Is um, you, you talked about the stories of our ancestors bumping up against this alien race, and then we lost you for a second. Can you maybe just pick up there again? Uh, yes, so... Um what the originals are, are stories of our ancestors bumping up against extraterrestrial visitors to planet Earth who interfere in our evolution as a, spirit, as, as a species, and then they manage Project Earth using us as their workforce. Oh. So, and when you say workforce, now is, is this the things like the pyramids, um, mining? What, what, what are they using, using us for? Okay, well, oh. Looks like we're losing the connection again. So, Paul, can you hear me now? Sorry, I lost. I lost you. There. Not a problem. How about now? Yeah. Welcome back to My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. I'm Todd Wilcox, and we're joined by Paul Wallace today talking about his book, Escaping from Eden. And we, uh, we had a little bit of technical difficulties, which we seem to have fixed during the commercial, so we're crossing our fingers that everything is good. And uh, Paul, before we, we uh, lost each other for a, a moment there, you were talking about Elohim, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And so if maybe we can just sort of pick up where we were and, and uh, you can continue to tell us about where we were going with your book and, and what led you there, that would be awesome. Sure thing. Well, the word Elohim was really the red pill for me that opened up a, a completely new world. I'd known for a long time that there was something funny about the word. We had covered this in Bible college all those years ago when I was training to be a pastor. And um, the anomalies about the word are these, that it is a masculine plural form word. Uh, if you just take the root meaning, it means the powerful ones. And you can see that it is a plural or was a plural because it often comes with plural form verbs, plural attributives. It has plural behaviors, the let us speak to look like one of us, that sort of thing. And then it starts uh, conflicting against itself through some of the stories. And so in the end, after I'd studied this for a little bit, I had to consider the possibility it might really be a plural. If something looks like a duck and swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, you've got to consider the possibility it might be a duck. And so in Escaping from Eden, what I do is take the reader with me through the exercise I did when I said, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to reread the Elohim stories with Elohim in the plural and see what it does to the stories. And of course, the stories change. But they don't change in a random way. The moral anomalies that, that are mentioned in our, in our conventional translations all resolve. The um, images of God failing to anticipate the obvious or changing his mind or having arguments with himself, they all resolve. And the stories shift in an instant once you pluralize Elohim 
and line up with the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian narratives that we believe are the source narratives, it quickly becomes clear that what we have in the Bible is a summary of the Mesopotamian stories. Now, we didn't know this until the 1800s because we couldn't read the Mesopotamian stories. They were all in this strange language etched on cuneiform tablets. And for a long time, people didn't even know that was language. We dug them up in the 1500s and they sat in museum vaults for 300 years with people thinking it was just decoration. And then in 1835, we discovered the translation key and we could start reading their stories. And so all the familiar stories of the creation, Adam and Eve, what we call the fall, flood, the limiting of human life, uh, the Tower of Babel, all those stories appear uh, in more complex form. And so it started becoming clear in the 1800s that the stories of beginnings in the Bible are a summary form of those stories. But the punchline to all this is that the source stories are not stories about God. The source stories are about our ancestors bumping up against sky people, people who've come to Earth from another planet who interfere with our evolution as a species, colonize our planet, and then manage Homo sapiens as their workforce. And the moment you see that the Genesis stories summarize those stories, it really is like the red pill in the matrix. You can't go back to reading it the old way because it does not make sense that way. Once you've done the translation work, Genesis lines up with the Mesopotamian and with ancestral narratives and world mythologies all around the world. So one one question I have as you're talking about this, and, and hopefully it's not too far astray, but um, I'm, I'm now interested in checking this out on my own. Does do you, do you need to read the King James version of Genesis, or can you read the new version? Will, will either version get you to the same place? You need a translation that is pretty transparent about what words it's translating for God. Uh, and different translations handle it differently. But a lot of translations, the convention is that if you've got the word God uh, in the text, in the English text, then that is translating Elohim. And then there's the other word that gets used for God, which is Yahweh. And when that occurs, some translations will either say Yahweh or they'll say the Lord, all in capitals. Uh, one of the best translations for being transparent uh, about the words for God is the uh, New Jerusalem Bible. And in fact, when I was researching Escaping from Eden, I went to the uh, senior editor for the New Jerusalem Bible to talk about the issues around the word Elohim, because it's... <laughs> It's a word that a lot of scholars uh, avoid uh, within Judaism, within Christianity. It is, a, uh, it is a red pill word that is, is the, the implications of it are so huge that they tend to avoid it. But I was really impressed that Don Henry Wansborough, the senior editor for the New Jerusalem Bible, was willing to dialogue with me over the issues of the word. So I'd recommend that, uh, that Bible if you can get hold of an interlinear, that's even better because there, if you've got an interlinear Bible and you can buy them from any um, uh, sort of uh, religious bookshop, it will give you uh, the Hebrew text or the Greek text or if you're, if you're in the New Testament. And then it'll give you a word by word rendition of what's going on in the Hebrew text. And then either side, you'll have say, the King James translation on one side and maybe the New International on the other. And that gives you a really clear picture of what's going on in the text. And you will see when Elohim crops up and when Yahweh crops up. And it becomes very clear very quickly that the Elohim word is the original word. And that even in some of the Yahweh stories, what we're really looking at is a reworking of the old Elohim stories, stories of the powerful ones, which we can now determine our stories of sky people. Perfect. And, and I'm guessing, um, I will be reading your book soon, but I'm guessing right now that 
uh, you go into pretty good detail. You, you know, if we don't have a chance to go look at these Bibles, you go into pretty good detail of, of what you found. Oh, that's right. That's the whole purpose of escaping from Eden, to walk the reader through this process so that they can see for themselves exactly what's happening in the text, what the issues and questions are, and how it is that I've come to the conclusion that the Bible is full of an E.T. narrative. Perfect. And that I think that will make a lot of sense for, you know, there's there's a lot of people listening that that have studied the Bible deeply and probably many versions, but there's many of us out there that haven't, that have done a quick read or maybe not have read it at all, uh, where your book would be extraordinarily helpful to clear that up. And I, I can't wait to, uh, actually there's a number of people I want to refer it to that, um, would really oh, benefit you, from son. it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Would really yeah, benefit. It is. It, it really does take a, a step by step journey through the whole thing. Uh, so that anyone who's completely new to the Bible, who's had no interest in the Bible before, it's really a great gateway book to to show a person what's happening in the text, what the issues are, and and how it is that someone like me, having been preaching on the Bible for more than 30 years, can, can realize there's another layer of story that has been mm, deliberately missed in some instances and just accidentally missed in others. Yeah. And, you know, that that brings up another thing. You've you've been doing this, you know, for most of your life, um, sharing the, the word of the gospel. How did you take it when many of these things um, th- that I, I assume you you pictured it as God? They're referring to God all these years. And now you find that that it's possibly referring to to an alien race. Um, how did how did that work with within your own um, beliefs and thoughts and and. Uh, how did how did that hit you? It does seem like a rather massive reframing, doesn't it? But for me, my faith began with a, a spiritual encounter I had when I was 17 years old, and it led me to a decision to um, follow the teachings of Jesus. I, I decided that Jesus was a really credible figure; his teachings were credible, and once I distinguished between the credibility of Jesus and the credibility of religious institutions, it was easy for me to say, well, Jesus is someone I'm interested in. I'm going to follow him. And my faith has been built from that start point. Now, any um, believer who has a, a faith that's centered that way or a preacher whose faith is centered that way will, from the outset, have some pretty major questions about what's going on in the ancient text, the Hebrew text, because Jesus purports to show us what God is like. And if God is like Jesus, then you have a problem when you go to a text where he seems uh, murderous, implacable, unforgiving, unpredictable, petty, punitive. I mean, there's no shortage of passages where you've got moral problems with the behavior of the character of God in the stories. And you can only go so far with the logic of saying, well, the writers are getting to know God while they're writing these stories. There are plenty of points where that elastic just just breaks. And anyone who's spent any time in the Bible and preaching from it will have a huge great list of question marks of things I've got to get to the bottom of. I've got to get to the bottom of that. And so for me, it's been more... It's not a black and white change for me. It's been more a matter of degree of going back and saying, yes, I don't think I am reading that right. And when you look at the early years of Christianity, the first couple of centuries, there was a lot of open discussion about what to do with the Hebrew scriptures, because a lot of the church fathers saw straight away there was this inconsistency between the character of the God character in the Hebrew scriptures and what Jesus was teaching. There were church fathers right from the beginning who were saying those stories, they're not, they're not really about God. They're about something else. And the views that I've put forward in Escaping from Eden were mainstream Christian views for the first couple of centuries, and they became excluded and um, excommunicated and tabooed uh, later in the story. But right at the beginning, what I'm talking about that we're part of a populated universe, that we've had contact 
uh, with other species who've had a hands-on in our evolution. These ideas were all part of the mainstream conversation of Christianity for the, for the first couple of centuries before it became a taboo. Very good. And, you know, and I, I don't want to get away from what you just said, but one of the things that just stood out to me is it makes so much sense. I've One of my concerns has always been, you know, I, I want to believe that that God is, is this loving, caring entity, but there's so many of that fire and brimstone, um, you know, dropping the hammer, these kind of things uh, that as a child terrified me in church and then kind of led me away as I got older because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't understand how something that I believe, you know, God should be this loving, caring force, um, could be that vengeful and, and nasty. And, and it, it makes much more yeah. sense. And it's like the, the, the fog just opened, um, talking about that it's, that it's most likely something else, the aliens. Um, that's right. We're blaming God for things that an alien presence did in the time of our ancestors. And these church fathers uh, who were talking along the lines that I I am were saying, look, if you accept these as stories of God, then you have to accept behaviors from God that you wouldn't justify from the most savage and unjust of human beings. And if that's your picture of God, it's going to distort everything. It distorts our vision of Jesus, distorts our understanding of the gospel, and it distorts us. Because, I mean, if you think about what happens to the psychology of a child in a home where the father is, say, um, violent, abusive, maybe an alcoholic, that child, their happiness, their self-esteem completely implodes as they grow up learning to tiptoe around this violent parent. Well, we've kind of done that to humanity by saying that's what God is like. And we've said that's what God is like because we've read stories about violent encounters with aliens and translated them as God's stories. And as I say, some of that I think was by accident and some of it was by design because within the story of the Bible itself, there is a silencing of that old memory of other entities. And you can see it in the Ten Commandments where the first commandment says, um, that you to worship um, one Elohim only, and you're not even to depict the others. The Ten Commandments belong to a henotheistic world, which means that there's an acknowledgement of many powerful ones, many powerful beings, but you are to follow only this one. That's that's what the Ten Commandments says. Then you get into Joshua, the second, the, the leader who followed Moses. And he puts out this call to reject the powerful ones that your ancestors worshipped, reject the powerful ones that Abraham and Sarah worshipped and served on the other side of the river and serve only Yahweh. Again, it's a henotheistic world where there's an acknowledgement of other beings, but you follow this one. And then at some point, and scholars generally, uh, there's a pretty broad consensus this happened in the 6th century BCE. There was a big edit done on all the collection of writings that formed the uh, Hebrew canon, to harmonize them, harmonize them theologically, so it becomes a single work teaching a single theology, and the big doctrine it's teaching is that is only one God, there's only one source of all things, which is a wonderful view, a really important contribution. But to do that, they try to airbrush out these memories of alien ET contact, and one of the ways they did that was that in the text where the Elohim seemed to be in charge, they translated that as God's stories. And that's how we end up with God genociding people, with telling Abraham to kill his firstborn son, or being totally implacable and unforgiving. It totally distorts our understanding of who and what God is. And then, as these church fathers were saying, you've distorted the whole of Christianity if you make that the preface to the Christian faith. Yes, I, you know, and this, this makes, I, I'm not kidding, Paul, I'm, I'm having just a kind of a revelation going through my mind about how much more sense all of this makes now um, 
through the years, it's always, it's been a struggle for me. And, um, this, this makes a lot of sense. If, if there was, you know, powerful beings that we somehow looked at as needing to worship because of their power, you know, we didn't know any better, um, getting away from God and who I believe God is. Um, and then this, this got into the book. So this, this is fantastic that it truly clears things up for me. And I'm guessing that there's a lot of listeners right now that are kind of having the same thoughts. Um, it makes a lot of sense to when, when God is actually that, um, kind, caring being that I, that I believe it to be. So thank you for that. Uh, it's, I hear from people every week, some weeks, it's every day from people who watched my videos on the fifth kind or the Paul Wallace channel or the red escaping from Eden. And they're saying just what you're saying. It's such a weight off their shoulder that they've always had this dissonance. They've always known it was off this, this image of God that had been presented. And of course you look at the history of religion, religion really can exploit people feeling fearful of God or feeling separated from God. Uh, the vision that these early church fathers had, who who read things the way I'm reading, was that we are all connected with God. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be spiritual. It's just a fact of life that we are all emanations of the divine source. And that is a, a totally different and wonderfully empowering start point for a journey of faith. And these church fathers got that view uh, largely, it has to be said, from Plato who had gathered together uh, the wisdom of the world at that time, and he had formed this view of God. He believed in God. He believed that the universe began with consciousness and love and harmony and order, and that that then fractalized into the material universe, and our story is part of that story. And these church fathers saw Jesus' story in that same context, giving us a model of of what's possible, of who we are, what kind of life we can lead. And it's such an empowering start. You can see why the forces of empire might prefer a religion that's very feudalized with a fearful god at the top and probably the emperor above god, why that was so amenable to the Roman Empire, why they adopted it in the way they did. But this much more empowered uh, vision of who we all are was rather unhelpful to an empire wanting a religion that would feudalize and control everybody. And that's why these strands of Christianity that included what I'm talking about did get silenced and excluded. It's, it's the story behind the burying of the Gnostic Gospels, which had far more about this information in them. And it, I think, unfortunately, it is part of a narrative of, of manipulation and control that uh, religion has been a part of over the years. Without question. Paul, we do need to break for some commercials. Don't worry, folks. We're going to be back in just a moment with more. Uh, Paul Wallace talking about his book, Escaping from Eden, on my side of the universe on KOAL, 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. Welcome back to My Side of the Universe on KOAL, 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. We are still talking to Paul Wallace. How much fun has this been? You can find his information at paulanthonywallace.com and uh, look at the different work he's done. So many resources at your website, Paul. You have links to different um, different things you've done, the Fifth Kind TV. You've got links with um, other interviews. There, there is just a ton of resources on your, on your website for people to look at, in addition to, to ordering your book. And is that the best place to get your book, or, or where would you suggest? Uh, you can go straight to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold, you'll find Escaping from Eden. Perfect. And, uh, yeah, I think this is, this is great reading. Now, some of the things we talked about, you know, during the break, I really thought, you know, made a lot of sense. So, um, you were talking about the, how topical this is now with, with the Pentagon, with the Navy, the, the various, um, footage that's been released. Um, you want to go a little bit farther with that for us? Yes, sure. I mean, for a long time, the, the story of cover up 
which I was talking about just now with regard to the Bible, has continued into the modern era. And so uh, 1947, I think it was President Truman signed the National Security Act, which classified all official exploration of uh, the UFO phenomenon. And there's been a 70-year policy of silence, denial, debunking in the States. And then in recent years, things have been shifting around the world. So we've actually heard from other significant authorities, particularly uh, Russia, I'm thinking, and France and uh, South America, where you're hearing more official people acknowledging that something's going on. And then there's been a massive change in the States the last couple of years because we've now heard a U.S. Navy. They are now allowed to say that for all the 70 years they have been engaging with UFOs or UAPs, that there is a department within uh, American defense, within the Pentagon, that exists to examine materials recovered from UFO crashes. We've never had, not in 70 years, have we had an, an official admission that we are engaging with crafts that we don't know where they're from and that we're recovering materials from them. And just to be quite clear what we're talking about, the phrase that's been used is off-world vehicles not made on this earth. So we've heard from the Pentagon, we've heard from Eric Davis, the physicist who briefs the Pentagon's department on this. We've heard from Luis Elizondo, who headed the department up for a decade. Chris Mellon, who was the uh, assistant, um, uh, what's, what's his title? Uh, Secretary of Defense for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush. These stories confirmed by Alain Juillet, the former head of French intelligence, all confirming each other's stories that this department has existed, has been looking at these materials. It is a disclosure that there is another presence with technology engaging with us. So that really is huge. It, it's come out a bit at a time. New York Times was the first to lead with this in 2017. But this year, we've now had these official disclosures. So that really is huge. And if people will just look all those references up, they'll realize there is a, a pattern of soft disclosure going on. We are being told there is another presence. So this year, even Father's Day this year, President Trump was on camera and in conversation with his son, and he made reference to the fact that he has classified information about Roswell. Now that's huge because we've had a very consistent story for more than 70 years that nothing happened at Roswell, that there was a weather balloon. And now President Trump is saying, well, actually there's a whole other layer to that story that has been classified. His son said, will you declassify it? And President Trump said, I'll have to think about that. And that tells you what the implications are of the classified version of that story. Meanwhile, of course, we have had witnesses who have been talking about what they experienced. And Roswell is a great example of where history splits into the official story and the indigenous narrative, the official history, and then what the locals know and repeat and pass on from one generation to the next. It, it really is a fantastic case study because that's happened all around the world, all through the ages. If you want to know about the history of ET contact on planet Earth, you need to go to the indigenous stories, the ancestral narratives of indigenous peoples and all around the world, culture after culture, you will hear this story that is now coming into the limelight via official channels. And that's the amazing change. There's a definite change. Now, with, with um, disclosure, um, you know, there, there's, there's some reason that they didn't trust the public with it. For years, I have said the public can handle anything. Quit thinking so low of, of the public. We're, we're not afraid. We, mm -hmm. You know, we're not going to lose our minds. But then... Then I watched people take all the toilet paper and paper towels out of every <laughs> every uh, grocery store in in America, and and my my thoughts changed. <laughs> can well, can yeah, we handle it? A lot of people have said that, but I, you know I think that that's that is unfair because if you've got your government telling you 
you're all going to die and all your children are going to die and your parents are all going to die if you don't lock yourself up, then of course people are going to stock up on toilet paper. But if the, if the communication is saying, hey, guys, we just wanted to let you know that for the past 70 years, and in fact, for many hundreds of years, there has been some contact going on. That's a different story. That's telling us there's a stable situation. We're not all about to be eaten. It's not about to be Mars attacks or Independence Day. You know, I, I would fully expect people to feel pressured if they're being told they're all going to die. But disclosure is not saying that. Disclosure is saying there is a presence, in fact, we have been engaging at some level. In fact, we've been benefiting technologically and that there has been this presence for hundreds of years. Now, many people, if there was any kind of a statement like that, would say, yeah, you know, I'd always suspected that. And with the drip drip that's going on, if you heard statements like that in 25 years time, I reckon about 70 percent of the population would say, yes, I'd more or less guessed that. Okay. I want to, I want to think well of us again, so I'm going to, um, I, my, my concern is if we, if, uh, you know, if, if the government comes out and, and discloses like I would have always loved them to that, that we'd probably run out and buy all the aluminum foil, um, you know, in, the, in the grocery store. For me, I've got to say, Todd, it, for me, I don't think the issue is about trusting the people. I agree with you that we should give people far more credit I think if there was a big disclosure, the real issue would be trust in our governments, yes. because how would we feel if we were told, sorry, guys, we've been lying to you for 70 years and we've been silencing this. So we didn't want you to know about the technology. We didn't want you to know we've been in contact. We wanted you to think we we're alone in the universe. I think if there was a big announcement, the issue would be around trust in government and how unhappy people would feel about being kept out of the loop of something so important and life-changing, something that could alter how we live on this planet. And I think that's why, instead of a big announcement, what's happening is this drip, drip, drip from the Navy, from the Pentagon, from French intelligence, uh, allowing witnesses to go on the TV without the official debunking that used to happen. I think that's how the story gets out without that big percussive shock horror moment. I like it. Paul, you're, you're helping me um, love humanity again, so I, I do appreciate that. Um, you very eloquently brought me back from the dark side. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, that's good. You know, some of the, some of the other things we ch chatted about during break, um, you were going to talk about DNA and, and uh, neurology uh, within the book, oh, and yes. I can't wait to well, hear about that. When I was that. researching Escaping from Eden, one of the things that uh, really surprised me is the eminence of scientists who support the idea that um, there is an element of the story of human evolution that belongs off planet, that life may have originated off planet, and that there may have been interventions in our evolution. And go to the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA, Francis Crick. That was his view right from the beginning, that the thing that made sense of what he was seeing was that life had originated in space and came here. And he's just one of a whole number of very eminent DNA uh, scientists who put that view, who hold to the view of panspermia, that's the idea that the genetic coding for conscious, intelligent life has been seeded throughout at least this part of the cosmos, and that when it lands on a hospitable planet, it leads to life forms such as we're familiar with. You can find that story in ancient mythologies, but science is actually pursuing that notion. That's why the European Space Agency spent, what was it, $8 billion getting a probe up onto a comet, the Rosetta probe, to test that theory. Well, when money that serious is being invested into testing the theory, you know it's being taken seriously. So I was fascinated to find DNA scientist Maxim Kukov, Vladimir Sherbak from the Fezenkov Astrophysical Institute and the Kazakh Al-Farabi National University, who are putting forward in much more detail, this idea of panspermia, of life coming from elsewhere. So that really gave me courage that uh, there's this correlation in science of what the mythologies and what Genesis are saying. And another area that really excited me is the area of neurology, 
where you can find a topic that's being researched called acquired savant syndrome. Now, this is a this just just Google that, and the stories will blow you away. Because what acquired savant syndrome is is where people have an accident, a blow to the head, uh, a brain injury, uh, a central nervous system event, and it unlocks some phenomenal skill that they didn't have before. They can speak a language they couldn't speak before. They can play an instrument they couldn't play before. They have phenomenal mathematical skills, uh, scientific knowledge. Uh, it, there are so many examples, artistic abilities, so many examples. I think Daryl Tre Trefford at Marion University, I think he studied now more than 70 cases of this. Now, an injury to the brain shouldn't make you smarter, should it? I mean, it, an injury... It didn't should, for me. <laughs> should, should take it the other way. Yeah. How is that happening? And, you know, a lot of us instinctively have the question, why do we have so much brain when apparently we use such a fraction of it? Is it because there are other abilities locked up in there? Well, these neurologists are saying, yes, there are abilities locked up in there. They're all in the off position, but they can be knocked on by accident. Now, that's an absolutely bizarre uh, state of affairs. How could that be so, that we have phenomenal capacities, but they're in the off position? There's language that the neurologists use. They say that when acquired savant syndrome happens, there's a disinhibition of the brain's functioning that happens. Well, a layperson like me reads that and says, well, what inhibitors do we get our brains in the first place? The world mythologists have an answer to that because the mythologies that acknowledge an ET aspect in our evolution, they all have this same pattern whereby we were uh, modified for a private, private ancestor, upgraded, 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 and then downgraded. They all have this last step in the story where we're brought down a peg to a point where we can be managed. And so there's this point in the story where we were more advanced than we are now, where we could do more than we can do now. Go to the Mesoamerican story, and their explanation is that our ancestors could had far better remote viewing than we have, had far better precognition than we have, uh, far more telepathic connection, abilities in self-healing, and that those who engineered that kind of homo sapiens found that population too difficult to manage. And so the story in the Popol Vuh, the Mayan story, is that when they realized humans were too advanced, they produced a vapor that they sprayed over human populations and it dialed our neurology down to the point where we are today, where we're limited to just our five senses. Now, those stories may be unfamiliar uh, if, if you've not happened to have read the Popol Vuh, the Mayan story, or if you've not read uh, pluralized Elohim in Genesis. That might sound like a new story. But once you hear that story repeat a few times, you realize it explains acquired savant syndrome. It explains why we have huge brains with most of it in the off position. The mythologists say we all have high capacities that have been dialed down. And those cultures who've curated those stories have always curated shamanic and mystical traditions whose whole purpose is to switch those inhibitors off and get us more intelligent, more conscious, and living on the planet in a more harmonious, intelligent way once again. So that's that was the takeaway I had from Escaping from Eden, the idea that our potential is far greater than we've imagined and that these ancient traditions are telling us we can live a better life and have a better human experience than we've had to this point. Wow. As as you were talking about that, I uh, one of one of my favorite places on the planet is Easter Island. And um, mm. the stories that you hear from the people who live on Easter Island about how the how the different Moai were moved is is m much like you're talking about where where they were using their own basically their brain power to levitate these things and walk them to the place they wanted them. 
and uh, and now I'm I'm picturing some of the different architecture around the world that that looks like it was melted into place and and those kind of things. And my my thoughts are kind of running wild on you know which switches have been turned off and how do you access it and and where do you go from here, um, which is well that, that's right. There's, there's been a lot of forgetting, and as well as seeing those things, you can actually find technology described in the texts often the written texts of our, of our ancient narratives. And in the past, we've read those as, as fable. Now, as we de- develop more technology, it's easier for us to read those texts and say, oh, yes, that's a craft. Oh, yes, that's a levitation technology. Oh, yes, that's manipulating the electromagnetic field. Oh, yes, that's artificial insemination. We now have the language to go back and I think I uh, can see what's going on there. Yeah, it, it really has uh, opened stuff up. And and I just hate it when all of a sudden something switches in my brain and opens up and it's time for us to leave. Um, <laughs> Paul, I would love to have you on here again in the future. I, I think there's so much more for us to talk about. And I can't thank you enough for being on today and, and sharing your book. And uh, I will certainly make sure people uh, head towards your your website and, and go to the different uh, book vendors to find this. I think it's, I think it's fascinating and thank you for doing it. Uh, thanks Todd. It's been a real pleasure being on your show today and I'll be looking forward to the next time. Awesome. Thank you very much. We'll be right back in just a minute with more my side of the universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7:50 AM. Welcome back to My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. I can't believe that my favorite hour of the week, the fastest hour of my week, is just about to end. Thank you so much for joining us each week. I have so much fun talking to these people and sharing it with you. Um, you know, whether you're driving or in your living room or, or uh, wherever you may be on a mountainside, I just thank you so much for, for coming in each week. And I want to thank our sponsors, the Eastern Utah Tourism and History Association. They've been with us. They just re-up for another year. Uh, perfect, perfect sponsor for this show. Uh, you can talk to them, Bob, Bobcat and Kitty. You can talk to them about anything that, that we talk about on here. And they, they understand it. They know it. They live it. They'll talk to you about whatever. You want to talk ghosts, history, uh, Bigfoot, aliens, uh, how weird I am. They'll, they'll jump on any of it. So, you know, don't hesitate to go talk to them. They love the visitors. So go see them. And, and they have a fun cat to talk to and a ghost at the place. So don't miss them. We've got some more great guests coming up. Can't wait to talk to them and come back and see you. Uh, so remember, you matter. Until you multiply yourself by the speed of light squared, then you energy. We'll see you next week on My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM.